Good evening, everybody. Finally have myself situated here. Welcome. <clears throat> Welcome to the fifth class. We are now starting book four here tonight, uh, the second half of the two towers. Uh, thanks for joining me. And, uh, and I see at least one, I think Yana is here with me this evening. Yeah, at least one European boldly sticking it out here at, uh, uh, <laughs> at what is it now? 2.30, 2.40 in the morning over there, Yana? Um, anyway, <laughs> good, strong, strong work there, Yana, strong work. 3.40 over there. That's right, I keep forgetting. Uh, and good afternoon to the New Zealanders. Welcome, everyone. So we are going to talk about... Uh, well, we're going to talk about the first three chapters of book four. Um, and I wanted to sort of start off by saying that, uh, of course, it's not going to surprise you. One of the things that I really want to focus on is continuing to look at this sort of theme or motif that I've been tracing since we started The Two Towers. That is, in particular, I want to really focus on the choices that people make and the basis of their choices and how they talk about those things. And in particular, with Frodo today, we're going to get back into looking at some... You know, you remember I talked talked a little bit about what I called Aragorn's fatalism uh, in the first class. And the more I've thought about it, the more I hate that word. I, that doesn't seem to me like the right kind of word at all. Fatalism sounds like somebody who's saying nothing I do matters and everything is going to turn out the way it's going to turn out anyway, so nothing matters. Uh, and neither Aragorn nor Frodo <clears throat> talk that way at all. Um, but anyway, I, you know, I, those things I want to I talk about because, of course, Frodo makes some very significant choices and talks about them as very significant choices uh, in these chapters. Um, but I, I want to kind of preface that by emphasizing that although I've been really interested in looking at that particular motif or theme as we've been going through uh, the book here together in these classes, um, I want to just emphasize that I, I, I want to make sure that you guys know that I'm not trying to suggest that I think this is like the major theme or the central, you know, heart of the two towers or something like that. Um, this idea, this sort of looking at the, um, you know, the way that characters are choosing and how these choices come out um, has just been kind of something that's really struck my attention as I've been reading through this time. Uh, and though I don't want to belittle it, as I do think it's a, it, it is a theme which is fairly prominent in this book, Again, I don't want you to think that, you know, in, in focusing on this as we go through these classes, what I'm suggesting is this is this is the heart of the book. Um, it's just kind of, as I say, what I've been really interested in. But I also kind of would point to it as an illustration of the kind of criticism that I most enjoy and that I most advocate. And that is really following the lead of the text and and looking carefully at what it shows you and noticing stuff and really beginning to make connections among things. Um, I was struck almost by accident uh, about the sort of the, the different cluster of things that come up in the first uh, two chapters, especially um, in particular, focusing on Aragorn and Aragorn's choices as we did. Um, I, 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 I did not premeditate that particular choice. Um, uh, other than, again, it's really kind of what grabbed me and what I was thinking about most when I read it this past time. But of course, having done that, having paid attention to that in the first chapters, um, I, I keep coming back to it and back to it because, you know, once you sort of 
pay attention to that, uh, you begin to see that actually this is something that comes up, not just recurrently in this book, but at really crucial moments. Um, you know, we get Aragorn and, and you know, the weighing of, of his decisions, and of course we get Gandalf's commentary on those, um, sort of explanatory commentary later on in chapter 5. Last time we were looking at Saruman at a crucial decision point, um, which is, you know, in some ways perhaps not obvious, but he is, he was at a decision point, and, and Gandalf emphasizes he was presenting Saruman with a real choice. Um, Saruman had options, um, but has instead uh, chosen the way that he chose, um, that he could have come down, he could have uh, decided to serve instead of vainly attempt to rule. And of course, as you may remember, this book is ultimately headed towards the choices of Master Samwise, which is going to be the last chapter. And of course, at the beginning of Book 4, we have the choices of Mr. Frodo, which are uh, in some ways kind of symmetrical to the choices that Sam makes at the end of the book. And of course, we'll be talking about that when we get there. So... um so anyway, I think, uh, yeah, Carissa, I noticed that too. And you know, I never really noticed that, but Carissa was just pointing out that thing which really jumped out at me this past time, how directly Frodo echoes Aragorn's All My Choices Prove Ill. Um, yeah, I, I, and, and that, that, you know, Carissa, that's one of the things that, that really jumped off the page at me this time, having been thinking about that so much from Aragorn, um, that, uh, I mean, it's not that I'd never noticed that line before, but the, 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 the direct parallels, chapter one of book three, chapter one of book four, um, I mean, you think about it, it's almost, it's almost at the same time that they're having, I know that some time has passed between the end of book, uh, between the end of book two and the beginning of book four, they've been wandering around in the Emin Mule for, for, for a little while, so it's not actually like the same day where Aragorn is back uh, uh, saying saying that, that, that same thing too. Um, but that's really cool, isn't it? Anyway, like I said, I just wanted to kind of pause for a second before we you know really dig into it, just to kind of draw attention to the fact that this is the kind of thing that I love doing, and, and the kind of thing that I think is so uh, is so wonderful about reading books carefully. I know that so many people have a fear of, or, or or even to put it a different way, a distrust of literary criticism. You know, of dissecting. You know, a lot of people talk about you know their high school English classes or college English classes, and uh, you know, and and uh, the 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 work of dissection of literature that tends to happen, and how uh, uh, you know some people have have had books that they quite enjoyed ruined for them by literary analysis. And, uh, you know, I, that that happens, and it's kind of sad. Um, but I just want to sort of to, to point out, it, it, that doesn't mean that reading something really carefully is going to ruin it. In fact, quite the reverse. This is why, um, you know, this is why, no matter how many times, no matter how many times I teach or read The Lord of the Rings, I always notice new stuff. I always see new things um, and, you know, come out of it with observations I've never made, connections I've never made, even things which sometimes, you know, like this one with the Frodo and Aragorn parallels there. Things which, as soon as I see them, I'm like, holy cow, how did I not notice that 15 years ago? But I just never really thought of it. It just, you don't always pay attention to everything and think about them in the same context. Anyway, just wanted to sort of point out for me this is this is the great fun both of teaching and of uh and of reading carefully in this way um so uh so anyway just a little um um uh 
Ooh, gosh, let's see. Sharon has laid down a little challenge here. Uh, she says, My mother complained over the years that she thinks Aragorn was not bold enough, kind of wimpy. Uh, hoping you will say something concise and brilliant I can hit her with. Um, I'll try, Sharon. I'm not sure. I, 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 I'm not sure I have anything especially pithy uh, that can be uh, uh, brought out, you know, cogently and poignantly in debate. But uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Let's go ahead and start with that passage that we've already been alluding to that Carissa was talking about and Chris has been thinking about and um, uh, and all that stuff. So it's uh, so I've got it here. Okay, Frodo says, I wonder. It's my doom, I think, to go to that shadow yonder, so that a way will be found. But will good or evil show it to me? What hope we had was in speed. Delay plays into the enemy's hands, and here I am, delayed. Is it the will of the dark tower that steers us? All my choices have proved ill. I should have left the company long before, and come down from the north, east of the river and of the Eminwheel, and so over the heart of battle plain to the passes of Mordor. But now it isn't, it isn't possible for you and me alone to find a way back, and the orcs are prowling on the east bank. Every day that passes is a precious day lost. I'm tired, Sam. I don't know what is to be done. Okay. Ah, uh, yeah, sorry. There's a button I forgot to push here. I should actually share the passage with you, I suppose. That would be nice, wouldn't it? There we are. Okay. How about that? Better now you can see it. Um, <laughs> thanks, Alyssa, for pointing that out. Um, okay. Um, so what do we notice here? I have already said that here in this passage we can see Frodo uh, showing a similar kind of fatalism. Though again, I'm increasingly hating that word. Okay, wait, let's pause for a second. Give me a better word. What's the word I mean? Fatalism isn't it. Because that just, it's not right. I'm talking about the way that both of them speak, the, the, the way they both of them consciously relate themselves to fate. That is, both of them, Aragorn repeatedly seems to take guidance from things that he considers to be elements of fate. Um, all the way back from the Fellowship of the Ring. You remember in the Fellowship of the Ring when he, um, you know, when he's saying things like uh, in the Dell under, under Weathertop, when he's like, we shall take the wood that is set here as a sign and camp here. Even when afterwards he's like, okay, in retrospect, I think camping here was a boneheaded idea. But still, at the time, he's looking for signs, which then he takes his guidance from fate in some sense. Sometimes it seems to be guidance from other people, like Gandalf, or even um, like Glorfindel, as when he finds the elf stone on the bridge, and says again, using the exact same phrase, we will take this gem that was set here as a sign. Now, maybe he just means as a sign from, from Glorfindel, which indeed it is. A token, as as uh, Glorfindel calls it. But there is... Uh, but I, uh, but given the, that it's that same exact phrase that he has used before, I think there's more in it than that. I think that he's actually thinking of fate, in a sense, too. Now, Sharon makes a, an important distinction that I think is right. Um, she says, not fate, but providence. Yes. Um, uh, th- yes. Those two things are arguably the same, or as Boethius, one of my favorite authors, uh, has argued in one of my favorite books, The Consolation of, uh, the Consolation of Philosophy, it's the same thing looked at from two different ends. Uh, providence being what it looks like when you think about it from God's 
point of view and how you know he is laying everything out and fate being what it looks like from within time uh, as it happens to us um, but um, but yeah Sharon I mean I think certainly recalling Providence um, Providence is certainly I think truer to the spirit of the way in which Aragorn seems to be talking about it again that's what's, what's what I am objecting to in my own use of the word fatalism is that that sense of fate that sense of there's nothing I can do everything is predetermined and prescripted and I, I, I must simply, you know, uh, resign myself to, you know, being a, a little chip of wood in the flow of this stream. That is exactly not how Aragorn is thinking there. He takes these things, these signs, as indicators of how he should act, like his own acts matter. So again, it's not fatalism in that sense. Providential, um, Sharon, I think is more true to the spirit of what Aragorn, how Aragorn seems to talk about it, um, that he is looking for signs that have been left providentially uh, in this sense. Um, but, uh, um, now, notice Frodo, of course, he uses our word, doom, right? Um, it's my doom, I think, to go to that shadow yonder so that a way will be found. Of course, I've, I've uh, b- you know, been making fun of that uh, in... The my little subtitle here uh, for this passage. Uh, because, of course, he's talking about how he doesn't know how to make up his mind. Um, he doesn't know what doom uh, to, 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 to deem um, in the context of this doom that he feels is laid upon him. But notice the significance of that. It is my doom, I think, to go to that shadow yonder so that a way will be found. Frodo seems to trust almost blindly um, blindly in the sense that he doesn't see what lies ahead of him he doesn't know how it can possibly happen but he's, it's my doom I think to go to that shadow so that a way will be found he believes that it's going to happen he believes that it is his doom to go there he believes he has a kind of faith uh, in the idea that not necessarily that he's going to succeed in his quest, but that he is going to be able to pursue the quest. He does not think he's going to, for instance, starve to death or fall off a cliff in the Emin Wheel and die where he is. He believes he's going to make it there. A way will be found. I don't know how. I have no idea what that way is. But, uh, but I believe he has hope. He uses that other important word here. What hope we had was in speed. <clears throat> there are a couple different kinds of hope uh, being involved here. When he says what hope we had was in speed, he means what practical reasons we had to believe in the likelihood of the success of our journey, right? He's meaning it in a very kind of practical way there when he talks about hope. Um, the greatest likelihood we had to succeed in this venture is to do it as quickly as possible before we are noticed, right? Or before, you know, before the Dark Lord grocks to what we're doing, right? So um, that's the sense in which he's using the word hope there. Um, Notice how he goes, you know, he says, all my choices have proved ill. Now, we talked about Aragorn's looking back at his choices and feeling like all of his, you know, you give the choice to an ill chooser and all that. Um, 
what's he referring to? Well, he spells it out, right? Okay, Frodo, exactly what choices do you regret? I should have left the company long before and come down from the north, east of the river and of the Emin Wheel, and so over the heart of Battle Plain to the passes of Mordor. Um, really? I can see why he'd say that, right? Especially where he is, right? He's trapped, and then there's the marshes anyway, and so he's like, surely if you're going to map a route to take, this is a bad one, right? I mean, the terrain is awful. Um, he's maximizing the chances that he's going to get lost or killed. He's ma- That is, like, by natural means, not by orcs or uh, by, 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 by enemies. But, in fact, as is so often the case in The Lord of the Rings we find that what has happened, though it seems to be unfortunate at the time, has in fact worked out to the unique benefit of the quest. Just as it kind of seemed like a bad thing, uh, really for everybody involved, for Merry and Pippin to be kidnapped uh, by orcs and, and uh, you know, orc-dragged across Rohan, uh, as Pippin says. Um, but of course, it turned out to be uniquely beneficial, uh, both for them and for everybody else, that this happened to them as they are brought, uh, as, you know, their, uh, their, their orc dragging has served, as Gandalf explains, only to have brought them uh, with wonderful speed and, and in the nick of time to the place where they never would have come otherwise, which was Fangorn, to uh, be instrumental in arousing the Ents like two pebbles which start a landslide in the mountains. Um, again, looked like a stroke of misfortune, turns out to have been uh, uniquely fortunate, actually. The same, of course, is going to turn out to be the case with Frodo's journey here. Um, this route not actually a very advantageous one, it would seem, on the surface, going around uh, by the heart of Battle Plain, over the heart of Battle Plain to the passes of Mordor, as he suggests, sounds like it is obviously would be the better way. Um, But given what we see later, actually, that's not the case. There's no cover there, and orcs are traveling there all the time. And in fact, we see armies marching in from south and from north and east to, 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 to come to Mordor. The odds of them being able to travel over the heart of Battle Plain to the passes of Mordor undetected are really small. Um, whereas, uh, you know, what hope we had was in speed, not precisely true. What hope they have is in stealth, actually, and the, and the, the, the way that they're going is, in fact, the maximally stealthy way though inconvenient in lots of ways. Um, But anyway, um, so we see on the one hand, Frodo is not accurate. It's understandable, his doubts about his choices and his frustrations about his circumstances. It sure seems like they're kind of hosed where they are. I mean, it's easy to understand how he feels that way. And yet, he believes, one way or another, a way will be found. There will be a path that will come open, but will good or evil show it to me? Notice the implication of that. He believes not only that somehow it's going to work out, but that it's going to work out through the agency of, through some external agency, right? Um, He knows he can't find the way. He knows he is inadequate to this task. Therefore, if it is true that it is his doom to go to the shadow yonder, somebody is going to have to show him how to do it and how to get there. He doesn't know who might be good or might be evil, but somebody 
is going, not just somehow it's going to happen, but someone is going to show him how to go there. And this seems to be why he jumps so quickly to the immensely counterintuitive idea of taking Gollum as a guide. Hey, there's somebody who's been tracking us for hundreds of miles. Uh, he has, like, a vendetta against me and, in fact, my entire family. Uh, he's been pursuing us stealthily for hundreds of miles with the desire to strangle me in my sleep, uh, and I am taking, I, I am keeping from him the only thing that matters to him in the world. Um, he sounds like the perfect... I, I'm, I think the only logical thing... I'm going to recruit him, right? I'm going to take him under my protection and take him along, because what... like, Upon whom could you place more solid trust than upon a person in such a, a circumstance? I mean, it's... That's completely mad. Right? I, 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 on, on, you know, from one way of looking at it, that is a completely um, absolutely harebrained idea. And yet... He, we see that it's already in the back of his head, not Gollum in particular. Will good or evil show it to me? Right? Someone, a means is going to be made open to me. A guide is going to be provided. So here we go, Sharon. See, I'm using your, I'm using your providence language here now. A guide will be provided, so that when they're sitting there staring at Gollum, okay, we've captured him. Do we stab him? You know, right now, just execute him here on the spot. Or what else do we do? Instead, he's like, ah, the guide. Look, it's the guide. I knew somebody would show up, and here's Gollum. Not what I would have picked, but hey, it's here, right? And that choice seems to be very heavily influenced by his... Okay, we still didn't come up with a word. I still need a word. This is where I would say fatalism if I haven't abandoned that word, but I have. And there's not a providence equivalent, is there? Providentialism? That's just not a word. Not a good one, anyway. Carissa and Sarah spontaneous... Okay. Carissa and Sarah at the same time suggest destiny. Chris and Tom uh, simultaneously suggest faith. I like it. Faith, I think, works better. I'm pausing because that's a slightly perilous word because of the particular associations that it has. That is to say, when I talk about Frodo's faith or Aragorn's faith, obviously that word is freighted with religious significance. And it's not that I think that religious application is inappropriate uh, in this circumstance. I think, in fact, religious application quite openly invited uh, by the Lord of the Rings uh, concerning these matters. But I don't want there to be confusion. That is, I certainly am not saying anything so simple as... I certainly wouldn't want to be taken to be saying anything so simple as it is Frodo's faith in God that leads him on. Because that would simply be inaccurate. Um, he has nothing of the sort. Um, he makes at almost no time any such reference um, to faith in a person or being that we would identify with God. Um, but faith, faith, yeah, Tom, as you're saying, faith, um, and 
Faith and trust that what should be shall be, as Tom says. I like that. Um, yeah, faith. I mean, the word faith, it, it means belief. I mean, you know, what you believe in. Um, of course, the word means more than just belief, uh, but it's a near synonym of the word belief, and he does seem to be... Uh, he does seem... He, he does seem... That, that, that sentence, it's my doom to go to that shadow so that a way will be found. That's a faith statement. It, it clearly is a faith statement. Um, as long as you will agree with me, uh, to, uh, as long as you will agree with me uh, to, to, uh, to, to sort of not misunderstand my, you know, not to, 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 to misapply that. Um, cause again, it's not that I think that it's, 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 uh, inappropriate to apply it, um, in a religious context, but again, but that Frodo isn't applying it in that sense. Anyway, um, yeah, Yana says, uh, without thinking in the exact in these exact terms, both Aragorn and Frodo have trust and faith uh, in the idea that the music won't be altered in Eru's despite. Um, yeah, yeah. Emily says, what about trust? Yes, though in some ways, Emily, I'm, I'm almost... Although that word itself has fewer potentially misleading associations, in some ways I find it less appropriate than faith, because trust um, trust much more specifically evokes the idea of another being or person who is being trusted. And that, I think, is not how either one of them are really expressing this. It's more like what Yana was just describing. Or, you know, Erica, I agree with Erica, if, you know, faith is belief in something for which there isn't absolute proof. Um, Frodo has no proof that help will, help will come to him, or indeed that he will find the way into Mordor, yet he has faith that these things will happen. That seems to me exactly right. Um, so, so, with my, uh, with my, my sufficiently stated, I think, cartload of, uh, of, uh, of cautions and disclaimers, I think I will carry on using the word faith, in that sense, because that does seem to me to be the word that best describes what's actually happening here. Um, here, specifically, in that sentence for Frodo. Um, but you'll notice his I don't know what it what is to be done, his I'm tired, Sam, his every day that passes is a precious day lost is if you want to say it this way, a failing of faith. That is, he is not taking the next step. And, or rather, he's saying he shifts from, I believe that a way will be found. I believe that providence will provide. But I am inadequate. He then focuses on himself. All of my choices have proved ill. And from then on, he's talking about his own shortcomings, both past and present. Past, the choices I made before were stupid. Present, my own strength and planning ability is not up to this. And now those things are all perfectly f- f- accurate and, uh, and, and humble of him. Um, but, uh, um, but, uh, 
but they seem to be there's there's a I think there's a kind of I won't say a contradiction, but a kind of a kind of tension, a kind of pulling uh, pulling apart between the beginning of this paragraph and the end of this paragraph. That is, in the beginning of the paragraph, he's saying, um, I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't know how it's going to happen, but I believe this is going to happen. And then he's saying, everything I've done has turned out badly, and I don't know what to do. Um, and that sort of pushes in a different direction from the things that he said at the beginning. Um the conclusion, if it's true that it's his doom to go to the shadow so that a way will be found, that someone, good or evil, is going to show it to him, if that is true, then no, you're not strong enough. No, you're not clever enough. No, you don't know your way around here well enough to find a path on your own. But that's okay. See part A. (laughs) Right? Um... So we see him kind of struggling in both directions. <laughs> Trust the force, Frodo, says Ed. Um, yes, yes. Um, hang on, let me... Uh, get, both Sarah and Yana are, are, are making a, 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 another pitch, in a sense, here for destiny over faith. Let me, let me explain why I chose faith over destiny, though I like them both. I, it's not that I don't think that the word destiny is appropriate, because I do. I think that um, destiny is a fine word. Uh, to be using here. But the reason I like faith better is that it works in the context that I'm wanting to use the word better. That is, when these characters are saying these things or acting in these particular ways, they are showing what? Fatalism was the word I'd been using, which I want, which I am rejecting, right? Faith is, works there. Destiny is a description, perhaps, of what's happening to them, or the thing in which they are having faith. So in that, Sarah, I agree with you. Um, but we can't say that they're, f- you know, it's it, it's not a description of them and their perspective, which is what I'm really wanting. Um, anyway, um, Yeah, Tom, I, I agree with you. I don't think that Tolkien would have seen uh, the doubts that Frodo clearly has as a denial of faith. Not at all. Um, and I'm not trying, again, I'm not trying to fault Frodo for thinking the things that he's thinking there. Just sort of pointing out that we can sort of see him going in both directions. Um, this is the struggle that both Frodo and Sam are going to be experiencing. This is one of the things that makes the Lord of the Rings as a story and these characters as characters as compelling as it does, is that Tolkien does so plainly see both sides of that. Um, the One of the main criticisms of The Lord of the Rings that you hear from ignorant people, by which I mean people who obviously have not really read The Lord of the Rings either at all or carefully at all, um, one of the common things that you'll hear people say, which may be one of the most annoying things I hear people saying about The Lord of the Rings, is... Tolkien is so black and white. Like, everything is... Like, all the good guys are totally good, and all the bad guys are completely evil, and there are no shades of gray in Tolkien. And I just... I I, I don't know of any... I I cannot think of an author who has uh, treated shades of gray with more delicacy than Tolkien has all of his good guys have doubts and struggles and uh, temptations and... Uh, and all of the and all of his and all of his uh, all of his uh, bad guys similarly are all the, you know nothing is evil in the beginning right and we can see the way you know and and he 
has done a, 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 a more interesting and compelling job of showing the steps by which a person gets from being a pretty good person with quite good intentions to becoming a, a, a completely, you know, wicked, what seems like a completely uh, depraved and abandonedly wicked person. Um, I, I, I don't know anyone who has demonstrated that, whether it be... Uh, whether it be Gollum or you know or Frodo, Saruman, Sauron, Melkor, um, I mean any of them, we you know he 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 shows that really. Anyway, I don't need to tell you guys this, but um, but anyways, Tom, just to get back to your point here, this is I think one of the things we see both in Frodo and in Sam, and can see all the way along. Um, neither one of them is simply a paragon of faith and hope, right? Um, both of them um, are experiencing really uh, really interesting. Uh, um, really interesting challenges uh, and and uh, and temptations in this way. Frodo, when the guide shows up unexpectedly, um, Frodo gets a little guidance, uh, and this is uh, a remarkable passage because it's the only example. You will have noticed, if you've been listening to me or especially been taking classes with me, you will have noticed this tendency of mine. Whenever I make an absolute statement, whenever I make a statement that says only, always, never, or something like that, I almost always actually stop in the middle of this. Do I want to finish this sentence? Is that right? Can I think of any counterexamples? I'll say it. This is the only time in The Lord of the Rings when there is this kind of a flashback, when we get a word-for-word, full-passage flashback of something that happened before. Um, We get lots of references, lots of recollections, even quotations, brief ones, like, you know, quoting, you know, don't meddle in the affairs of wizards, for they are subtle and quick to anger. But this kind of a flashback, where we are brought back to a passage back in Chapter 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, and we sort of relive that, right? Um, And so it's on the one hand, for its uniqueness in that sense, kind of jumps out. It's like, okay, Tolkien at this moment wanted to make sure that we remember something that was said before, and he was so adamant that we remember this thing that was said earlier in the book that he's actually said it all again um, in italics here in the middle of the passage. Um, In which case, we should bloody well pay attention (laughs) to this thing that he has gone so far out of his way to remind us of. And of course, what he's doing here, one of the things that... Well, let me read it and we'll talk about it. It seemed to Frodo that he... that then... I'll come in again. It seemed to Frodo then that he heard, quite plainly but far off, voices out of the past. What a pity Bilbo did not stab the vile creature when he had a chance. Notice the voice out of the past he hears is his own. Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy, not to strike without need. I do not feel any pity for Gollum. He deserves death. Deserves death? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some die that deserve life. Can you give that to them? Then be not too eager to deal out death in the name of justice, fearing for your own safety. Even the wise cannot see all ends. Very well, he answered aloud, lowering his sword. But still I am afraid. And yet, as you see, I will not touch the creature. For now that I see him, I do pity him. Okay. Um, what, um, What do we see here? Again, 
fascinating, isn't it, that the voice that he hears out of the past first is his own? Um, that is, he finds himself his own, you know, in his own mind, whatever it is that's causing this flashback, because I note it's not just a flashback for us, right? Frodo is hearing this quite plainly, but far off, right? So he is actually hearing these voices, his own and Gandalf's, in his own, you know, in his mind's ear. If your mind has eyes, it can have ears, right? Um, these sounds. Okay, so, so what's happening here? On the one hand, we're getting the clear juxtaposition of Frodo and Bilbo, right? Well, I guess there are sort of three things that are being put side by side. Three things, really, that are being juxtaposed. One is Frodo standing there holding Sting to Gollum's throat, right? The other is Frodo commenting on, you know, so that juxtaposed with Frodo's attitude back in Chapter 2, the one that's expressed here, right? And, of course, the third scene that both of them point back to um, the one explicitly, the one by parallel, is Bilbo and Gollum, and Bilbo's choice to spare Gollum's life in cha- at the end of chapter 5 of The Hobbit, when he has pity on him and doesn't kill him. Um, and this is, of course, the moment that was anticipated by that moment uh, in chapter 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, you know, when, when he is commenting back upon Bilbo's choice... What a pity Bilbo didn't stab the vile creature when he had... Boy, Bilbo really blew it, right? Uh, what, a, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a sad choice that was. Um, how much trouble could have been saved if he had just offed Gollum uh, back then? None of this would have happened. Um, Gandalf, obviously, supports Bilbo's choice and points out the irony of his particular wording. Pity. It was pity that stayed his hand. Notice the difference. Pity and mercy... What's the difference between pity and mercy? Ever think about that? Mercy, not to strike without need, right? Um, That's, I think, the clarification there. It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy, not to strike without need. Um, So mercy is just not killing somebody who deserves to be killed, right? That's what it means to have mercy on somebody. Uh, Not to kill somebody who doesn't deserve to be killed, uh, who has done nothing to merit death, that's not mercy. Um, that's just not being a jerk, right? I mean, that's 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 being unevil. Um, you can you can it's it's it, it it may be just, in fact, to execute somebody who deserves death. I, that I think is implicit um, uh, in all of this. And of course, this will come up again with Faramir when we get there, which will be Thursday, I believe. Um, but. Um, so showing mercy is simply I'm going to refrain from giving you the punishment that you have merited. And Gandalf doesn't deny that he deserves death, right? Doesn't deny that it is simply an act of mercy, not an act of justice, to refrain from killing Gollum. But what he emphasizes is that it's not just mercy, right? It was not simply, I should kill him, or I could kill him, but I won't, right? I'll... I'll let him go. I'll give him another chance. I'll let him go this time. That's not... It wasn't mercy. That really... It was an act of mercy in a, sen- in a sort of a literal or legal sense. Um, but it wasn't mercy that motivated him. It was pity that motivated him. And what's the difference? What's the difference between pity and mercy? Um, pity is about being affected by somebody else's suffering. Um, seeing and taking and having compassion 
on the misery or suffering of another person. Um, taking somebody else's pain seriously. That's what pity is, right? Uh, pity gets such a bad rap in our society. Nobody wants to be pitied, right? Everybody feels insulted if they're pitied. They feel like they're being patronized if they're pitied. Pity is just somebody else looking at you and saying, I see that you're suffering and I care about that, right? It's, it's, it's really sad, actually, uh, the way that pity is treated in our society, I humbly think. Um, but I'll, but I'll back away from that particular pulpit. But anyway, um, that's the element for Bilbo. If you remember back to chapter 5 of The Hobbit, what Bilbo is thinking in that moment before he takes his leap in the dark, before he chooses, to, you know, that, that, that leads him to choose, to refrain from killing Gollum, is that moment of identification, when he ceases to think of Gollum as simply this slimy creature who wants to eat me, uh, and instead imagines himself in Gollum's position. You know, the days in the, uh, you know, alone in the dark, and, uh, and how miserable and wretched his life must be. Um, and it's that, it's pity for the suffering that is Gollum's life, that is his, his, uh, his, his wretched existence. Um, he is, from the beginning, a wretched creature. As well, he's a he's a wicked creature, but he's a miserable wicked creature. Um, that's the pity that he has. It's that compassion that leads Bilbo to choose that. It's that compassion which Frodo entirely lacked. What a pity Bilbo didn't stab the vile creature when he had a chance, right? Um, I do not feel any pity for Gollum. He deserves death, right? He has done bad things. He should be killed. Um, and notice what Gandalf points out here. Be not too eager to deal out death in the name of justice, fearing for your own safety. It's not objective justice that's motivating Frodo. What's motivating Frodo? The, what he goes on to say right after this, this quotation, it's not included in the flashback, but if you go back to the Fellowship of the Ring, what he actually says next is, I'm sorry, but I'm frightened. Right? That is, he himself recognizes, as soon as he's rebuked here by Gandalf, gently rebuked, but rebuked by Gandalf, what he immediately recognizes is, it's not a desire, an objective desire for justice that makes him want to see Gollum killed. It's because he's afraid. It's because he is motivated by his own self-preservation, and he knows that he has personally been brought into danger by Gollum, and therefore he wishes that, he would rather that Gollum be killed than that he himself be brought into danger. That is the opposite of pity, right? To uh, dis- to disregard someone else's situation, someone else's suffering, because you are paying attention to your own instead, right? Um, that's what Frodo is experiencing back in chapter two. Here now, he says, and yet as you see, he's like talking to memory Gandalf, whom he thinks is dead. Um, and yet as you see, I will not touch the creature, for now that I see him, I do pity him. Now he has compassion on him. Now he can't just execute him. Even though you would think his fear would be greater now, right? I mean, not only is, is you know, it was, was everything that was true of Colum back in chapter 2 still at least as true now, but now you've got the fact that, you know, this is the guy who's been pursuing them. They are in very real danger from Gollum, um, both in terms of murder by night and by somebody who can now easily expose them, who could at any time have easily exposed them. Now certainly very easily. Um, so, uh, so anyway, th- those things are certainly even more in force now, and yet now those things are being trumped by pity, because now that he sees him, 
Um, now he, like Bilbo before him, is able to sort of establish that imaginative link between himself and Bilbo. And in a sense, it's much stronger. Because now he has a further link between himself and Gollum that Bilbo never had. Or if Bilbo did have, he had no concept of it at the time. Because, of course, when Bilbo had pity for Gollum, he was pitying, pitying merely his wretched, solitary, uh, uh, you know, sort of pathetic, uh, lonely, um, squalid life underneath the mountain. He had no idea, um, certainly because in 1937 it didn't exist, but even afterwards, um, Bilbo had no idea about the ring and what the ring had done to Gollum, and that he himself was now the holder of the ring and in danger of having the same thing happen to him. Bilbo was clueless about, you know, in any version of the text, Bilbo was clueless about any of that, right? Um, so he didn't have, but Frodo does have that. Frodo does know. He knows the power of the ring. He knows the role that the ring has played in making Gollum into what he is. He feels the effect of the ring on himself, at least to some extent. He has seen its impact on others. Boromir has got to be still pretty present in his memory, right? Um, so Frodo has much more cause, in this sense, for, or much better grounds for pity um, than, uh, than, than Bilbo even did. Um... By the way, um, I said if you go back and compare to the Fellowship of the Ring, one thing that's interesting, if you go back and compare to the Fellowship of the Ring, um, the quotation is not exactly the same. In fact, there's one change. Fearing for your own safety is added. Gandalf didn't say that back in Bag End. That might just be an error on Tolkien's part, that he meant to go back and change the part in Chapter 2, and that didn't happen. Um, but uh, but it's interesting, actually. Um, and And... What I take, what I take from that is that that element um, is one that he wanted to that Tolkien wanted especially to stress here, um, and whether he was going to change it back or not, um, that is I think something that is being imported back into that passage or being made rendered more explicit in that passage in this new context in which it's being placed. Um, yeah, good. Um, Chuck, that's a really interesting distinction. Um, Chuck says, Mercy implies power over the powerless, or at least comparatively powerless. Uh, pity requires empathy for the powerless. Um, yes, truly, a tyrant can be merciful, right? Um, yeah, I, it, to, to show mercy to someone is an act of power. Um, if you don't have power over somebody you don't have the opportunity to show mercy to somebody. Um, so that's true. Whereas, as you say, pity is, uh, pity is manifested uh, in showing empathy for the powerless. I think that's a good way to, uh, uh, to, 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 um, uh, to think about it. Um, good, good. Um, Okay, sorry, I'm just scanning. Uh, um, 
Yeah, oh, good. And uh, uh, Alyssa has pointed out a second deviation because uh, I did, Alyssa. I knew that you would be noticing uh, the differences back from the Fellowship of the Ring version. Yes, that not only is there the fearing for your own safety addition, uh, um, but she also points out the fact that justice. Um, is replaced judgment is the word in the name of judgment um justice is the word uh that is used here and again i think it's being made to emphasize that both of those Alyssa, i take to be emphasizing that same thing right um when you are afraid for your own safety when you're actually just trying to protect your own hide um you can enact something which you enact in the name of justice, right? You can deal out death in the name of justice to protect yourself, right? And it might be just, in a sense. I mean, it's not to say that, you know, you're necessarily fooling yourself. But the point is that justice, in, on its own, is not what's motivating you. Um, it might be an act of justice, but it's not performed for the sake of justice. It's performed out of fear. Um, it's performed for the sake of self-preservation. Um, and uh, and I think that both of those changes, Alyssa, seem to me to draw particular attention to that. And again, to, to, and to that as the opposite of pity, which he was describing before. Um, Patrick asks an excellent question, which... Okay, I'll just read it. Patrick, Patrick says, At this time, Gandalf is back, and he can put thoughts into people's minds. Could Gandalf have been communicating with him, reminding him? We saw him do this, right? We know this is uh, this this happens. It happened on Amon Hen, right? Gandalf was the voice. We had the eye and the voice. Um, and uh, it was Gandalf's voice, of course, that was in his head saying, Fool! Take it off! Of course you could tell it was Gandalf, because he was calling him a fool, right? Um, but... Um, but anyway, that, that so we we do know that Gandalf can do that. It's the kind of thing that he has done and can do. Um, could Gandalf? Could this actually be Gandalf communicating with him? Um, I agree with the, Diego. I agree with you that it's not necessary. Um, you know, as, as Diego says, Frodo is in that exact situation that was under discussion uh, in that discussion. You know, so it would it, it, it's very natural for him to be reminded of that moment here. It doesn't need, you know, sort of direct telepathic uh, uh, um, connection here to, to to recall that. I certainly agree with that, Diego. It's it's absolutely not necessary. Um, Patrick suggests it would change the different. It would suggest it would explain the differences. Yes, yes. Um, I agree with Ed. Ed says Gandalf has already said that the ring has passed uh, beyond his power. Um, Yana says he does... uh, We do hear later that Gandalf is all this time continuously thinking of Frodo. Um, Yes, yes. Um, Yes. yeah, Brianna is m- mentioning that too. Uh, Gandalf is ever thinking of them and searches for them with his mind, but they are hidden from from him. Yeah, Brianna, that's what I would emphasize too. Um, let me start off by saying I don't think... I'm not sure we're going to find a definitive answer to this question. I think that there is sufficient evidence 
to permit this to be read in either way. Um, the direct way in which he's hearing these voices out of the past, this is not just, oh yeah, wasn't I talking to Gandalf about this? Uh, in retrospect, I feel I feel like an idiot for what I said back there. Now I totally I totally see what he meant. This is very different from that kind of thing. He's hearing the voices quite plainly, and we get him we get it narrated again, right? He's hearing it echoing in his mind. That's not just a normal memory. So, and we've got the Emon Hen precedent and those references to his thought going towards Frodo. There is enough, I think, to justify that reading that Gandalf is actually, in a sense, intervening here. Um, or somebody else intervening here. But I incline against it mostly because of those other things. When Gandalf says that they have passed beyond uh, beyond his power, um, th- and also the extent of the ignorance that he professes about what's going on with Frodo and um, uh, where he is and what's going on. He doesn't know anything about Frodo since Amonhen. He does claim Amonhen. I mean, he openly says that that was him, and that he knew the struggle that Frodo was under, and that he escaped it, but he doesn't know anything else, and has had no contact with him since. It seems to me that, although it's not open and shut, I would say the preponderance of the evidence is against this being a direct Gandalfian uh, intervention in Frodo's mind here. Um, But... That's not to say there isn't an intervention. I'm just not convinced it's Gandalf. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, I'm, uh, I'm being spectacularly inefficient tonight. Let me, let me, let me carry on. Um, this is a very closely related discussion that Frodo and Sam have. The topic of this discussion is Hope, in a sense. But hope, I think, is closely related to the issues of doom and of, uh, of, of choice that we were looking at before. Um, oh, wait, and by the way, having spent so long on that previous quotation, now I feel I must move on from it, and yet I'm now realizing I'm moving on for, from it without having said the thing that I really wanted to say about it, uh, which is... Notice, this is the premise upon which Frodo is making his choice, right? What that passage does, that, you know, flashback passage does, is highlight for us, not highlight, spotlight for us, what is the reason, what is motivating Frodo, what, to think in in Aragornian language, what is the sign that guides him to make the particular choice that he makes? Um, And it is pity, and the memory of Gandalf's words about the significance of pity, right? Um, He doesn't kill Gollum because he pities him, and he now sees the truth in what Gandalf says, that pity is indeed a good thing to be guided by, and has been in the past a good thing to be guided by. Again, Maybe it seems to you right now, Frodo, right now, meaning in Bag End in Chapter 2, maybe it seems to you singularly unfortunate that Bilbo did not kill Gollum. I, Gandalf, am suggesting to you that, in fact, it may well be uniquely fortunate that he did not. Um, That the pity of Bilbo is going to guide the fates of many, right? Is is, is going to to influence the fates of many. Um, 
so if that's going to turn out to be a good thing. So Frodo here is basically subscribing to that, kind of like Aragorn does, more overtly than Aragorn did back in Chapter 2, when Aragorn's like, okay, my mind, my, my heart speaks clearly at last, we'll follow Merry and Pippin, right? We cannot abandon Merry and Pippin to torment and death. Off we go, right? And Frodo is here saying, okay, I can't kill him. Ob- that's obviously not right. Um, so I'm not gonna. Therefore, I've got it, and I, I and I can't leave him. It would be obviously unwise to just let him go. It would be wrong to kill him. Therefore, I'll take him with me. And oh, I was waiting for a guide. Look, okay, not what I had in mind, but here it is, right? And thus he comes to that initially enormously counterproductive, or not counterproductive, counterintuitive uh, conclusion to take his would-be murderer and assassin as his guide. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Brianna, we're getting to that passage. Um, we're gonna we're gonna come back directly to the passage you were just quoting, and uh, well, I hope to get to that passage that you just quoted. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Kay points out uh, that it's interesting that the pity of Bilbo uh, may rule the fates of many. Uh, isn't intrinsically a good or a bad thing. It could be to a good end or an evil one. That is, he doesn't explicitly say. Thanks to Bilbo's pity, everything's going to turn out great, right? He doesn't say that. Um, may rule the fates of many, one way or another. I agree with you about the potential ambiguity of that, though certainly uh, the implication in the context of it is that Bilbo's pity upon Gollum will turn out to have been a good thing, um, as of course it does, uh, and as will Frodo's pity here. But anyway... Now, that, now, now we can move on uh, to uh, to my next passage here. Uh, they're talking, of course, about their food supply. I don't know how long we shall take to to finish," said Frodo, using Sam's word. We were miserably delayed in the hills, but Samwise Gamgee, my dear Hobbit, indeed Sam, my dearest Hobbit, friend of friends, I do not think we need give thought to what comes after that. To do the job, as you put it, what hope is there that we ever shall? And if we do, who knows what will come of that? If the one goes into the fire and we are at hand, I ask you, Sam, are we ever likely to need bread again? I think not. If we can nurse our limbs to bring us to Mount Doom, that is all we can do. More than I can, I begin to feel. thing I would emphasize here are, first of all, hope. There are two separate issues, and I think that sometimes confusion about this can cloud things later on in the book, indeed, uh, even in the next passage that I want to talk about. Um, There are two things that he's talking about hope for. One is hope for the success of their quest. That is, what hope is there that we will actually get to Mount Doom and destroy the ring? Um... Uh, if we can nurse our limbs to bring us to Mount Doom, that is all we can do. More than I can, I begin to feel. That last statement is a doubt, uh, is, a, is, is, is a questioning of his hope in the fulfillment of their quest. Um, 
you know, how high is his hope that they can do the job, that they can succeed in their quest? Uh, he has some faith that it's going to be that a way will open, but he certainly does not have anything like rock-solid faith that they're definitely going to win, right? That it, that the quest will definitely be achieved. But that is distinct from hope for his life and Sam's following that. And I think that those are two really distinct things in his thinking here. You've got, what hope is there that we will successfully destroy the ring? Then, different question, what hope is there for us in our survival after that, even if we get there? We're probably going to die on the way there. If we get there and succeed in the quest against all odds, then we're definitely going to die, right? His statement is that he has no hope, no real hope, for them, for their survival, okay? Um, He does have some hope that they're going to succeed, and that hope comes not from reason, not from like, well, I've calculated the odds of our success, and, you know, they have a fair shot. No, they don't have a fair shot. Uh, They are, like, an enormous long shot, and everybody knows it. Indeed, remember the Council of Elrond, that was kind of the plan, right? Hey, let's do this, because this is staggeringly unlikely, and it has almost zero chance of succeeding. That's the reason we should do it. Remember, that's the the kind of counterintuitive thinking that both Elrond and Gandalf do. Um, and I, I think we should choose Frodo because this this uh, may be done by the weak as well as by the strong. Really, seriously, like weakness gives you an ad- what's the advantage in weakness exactly? Elrond, explain that a little bit more. Anyway, that's exactly the way that they're thinking, right? So again, it's not about I've worked out the odds, and you know Vegas says bet on us to to to, set, to fulfill the quest. No, it's a faith statement. Again, the the same kind of faith statement that he was talking about before. He has enough faith in this doom that is laid upon him that he thinks it's possible. Not necessarily likely, certainly not definite, but possible that they're going to get to the cracks of doom and throw the ring in the fire. But he seems to consider it almost a foregone conclusion that if they do, they are personally going to die. So he has very little hope for them. He has some hope for the completion of the quest, which is based upon this faith that he has, uh, this belief in his destiny. See? There you go, Sarah. Um, This belief in his destiny, uh, that this doom has been laid upon him, uh, and that perhaps he will indeed be made uh, capable of doing this. Now, Sam weeps in response to this. You know, he bends over Frodo, he's holding Frodo's hand and he bends over it and kiss, and doesn't kiss Frodo's hand, but his tears fall upon it. Um, Sam is, I think, not weeping for himself, but for Frodo's own resolution, right? That he is, he is weeping for the death of his master, he is weeping for the fact that, you know, his master has set himself to sacrifice himself, to, to you know, to, to, to continue walking into this, you know, down on this path despite the fact that he, Frodo, believes that this path ends in his own death. Um, But Sam, of course, is determined to follow along with him. Um, Yes, it is, as Kay points out, a fool's hope, uh, as as they call it. Um, Yes, it is definitely not uh, definitely not wise. Now look at Sam's side of it. I want to sort of juxtapose this passage um, with the slightly later one, um, 
this is Frodo to Gollum. This is in the debate about, uh, ultimately, about the debate about Kirith Ungol. I am commanded to go to the land of Mordor, and therefore I shall go, said Frodo. If there is only one way, then I must take it. What comes after must come. Now that sounds fatalistic, doesn't it? Sam said nothing. The look on Frodo's face was enough for him. He knew that words of his were useless, and after all, and after all, he had, had never had any real hope in the affair from the beginning. But being a cheerful hobbit, he had not needed hope as long as despair could be postponed. Now that they were come to the bitter end, now they were come to the bitter end. But he had stuck to his master all the way. That was what he had chiefly come for, and he would still stick to him. His master would not go to Mordor alone. Now. What I want to talk about here especially, what does Sam, what does, what does the narrator mean when he says Sam had never had any real hope in the affair from the beginning? What does that mean? Hope for what? Which of the things that, uh, that, that Frodo is talking about, is, is this Sam saying, I never thought we were going to get the ring there. I thought this was, this was completely useless from the beginning. Or is this an expression of the, his lack of hope in their survival? Like, in basically agreeing with what Frodo was saying before. Um, what do you think? Carissa, I agree with you. Carissa says that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Sam to hope or not to hope. You're right, Carissa, that basically what the narrator says is that Sam had essentially suspended this. Right, he had not needed hope as long as despair could be postponed. Right, um, despair, of course, is the opposite of hope. I love the old Middle English word. Um, it's an Anglo-Saxon word too, I think, um, but I know it's a Middle English word um, uh, for despair, which was one hope. Um, uh, you've got hope and one hope, uh, and one hope, despair. Um, you know, that's a, you know, Gandalf defines despair. You may remember in the Council of Elrond, despair is for those who see the end beyond all doubt, and we don't, right? Despair is for those who see the end beyond all doubt. Um, and that seems to be the place where Sam was, right? He, despair could be postponed because he didn't see the end beyond all doubt. Like, like okay, he, he, he didn't believe that it was really going to happen, that is success. He didn't really believe success was going to happen, but he wasn't like a hundred percent sure that it wasn't going to happen. There was at least some doubt about the the ultimate catastrophe and their failure. Since their failure was still in at least a little bit of doubt, then he was fine. He could go on. He didn't need hope. He didn't need actual positive thinking. He didn't need to believe. He didn't need faith, right? He didn't need faith in their success, so long as he could stay away from certainty in their failure. That seems to be what this passage says. Do you agree? Do you agree? Let's see. Okay, Rachel agrees. Um, Carissa points out quite, uh, quite beautifully Sam is not so much involved in this faith and hope question 
because his focus is on the other one, on love. Uh, of course, these are the three, what are called the three theological virtues, uh, faith, hope, and charity, faith, hope, and love. Um, I prefer charity myself in the older sense of the word caritas uh, or agape, as Paul was using it. Um, but anyway, yeah, love. Um, th- that's 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 the third leg of that particular uh, of that particular stool: faith, hope, and love. And you're right, love is what Sam is focused on. Um, faith and hope he could do without because he had love, right? And this is what he's doing. His his master would not go to Mordor alone. That's what matters, right? That's what matters to Sam. Are they going to succeed? Not relevant to him, anyway. That's not why he's going, right? That's never was why he he's going. But you won't go without me, surely, Master, he says, back in the Council of Elrond. What he's saying, of course, is exactly not your odds of success without my assistance are much, much less, right? No, no, no. You must take me along and therefore significantly increase your, your chances of, of achieving your... No, that's never what he said, right? That was never what it was about. It was never for him about success in the quest or increasing Frodo's chances of success in the quest or even maybe with me Frodo can stay alive or maybe I can keep Frodo alive when he would die otherwise. That Even that isn't exactly it. It's just... I am determined to stick with him, right? I am. It is he is guided by love, as Carissa points out. Um, it's not about. Faith. Sam doesn't is certainly not at this point saying things like, you know, it is our doom to go to that. That's not how he's thinking, right? He's thinking about Frodo and his devotion to Frodo, and that is what to him matters, and perhaps is one of the reasons why he didn't need hope so much as um, not despair. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Alyssa, that's a really great question. I agree with your suggesting that this is a topic that is a bigger topic to point to, and maybe we can come back to this one later on. I mean, like a couple classes later on, when we're kind of backing up a little and looking at the looking at the bigger picture. But um, but Alyssa asks, you know, uh, po- pointing to Frodo's pretty remarkable use of the word commanded. Here and, and I agree, Alyssa. That always jumps out at me in this passage too. Commanded by whom or what? Um, this is too big a burden to lay on another. Remember, this is that's Elrond says that, right? This, you know, I, I do not lay this upon you, he says. But if you choose to take it, I will say that your choice is is right. Right? I mean, that's how Elrond speaks. Elrond doesn't command him. Um, yet that's yet another restatement of Frodo's belief in doom, maybe. Alyssa suggests, yes, Frodo seems to see this, seems to see himself as operating under a command. And Alyssa, remembering that moment in the Council of Elrond that you're recalling, I would remember what happened right before that. When Frodo speaks up and says, I will take the ring, but I do not know the way. Remember the narrator tells us that Frodo feels at that time like somebody else is using his small voice, right? That that he... He's like it's not even a hundred percent by his own will that he is speaking. Um, he has so I, I I do therefore in this sense, Alyssa, connect it with this with his faith, his belief in his doom in in, in doom. Um, it's interesting and important, I think, that Frodo, the way that Frodo looks at things is as if he were under a commandment, even though nobody has commanded him. Uh, that we have seen. Um, Sam, 
obeys a different commandment. But having said that, and having said is, you know, again, I, I love Chris's bringing up of love in the context of faith and hope. Um, I, I, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact about what it says about Sam and hope. Um, the fact that Sam had never had any real hope in the affair from the beginning, I think is fascinating. Again, it shows us his devotion, um, his willingness is unflagging in, the spite of, in, in spite of that, right? Um, he is not going on because of his faith or because of his hope. He is going on only because of his love, but we should note his absence of faith and hope uh, because that's important. Um, and, you know, certainly going to be something that we'll continue to look at when we get to the choices of Master Samwise at the end, that's going to be a factor. And we're definitely going to want to be remembering this when we get there. Um, yeah, good. Diego's also reminding us of uh, Gandalf's language about, uh, you know, Frodo being meant to have it. Um, uh, yeah, Diego, I think that's that's thinking about uh, Frodo's mindset here. Um, I think, Diego, you could argue that he has sort of internalized this much more now, certainly than he had back then. Remember his response then, you know, Gandalf says, and that may be a comforting thought, and Frodo says, it is not. (laughs) There's nothing comforting about that. Well, whether or not he's comforted or not, he has certainly embraced that. He has certainly internalized that much more um, at this point. Um, Yeah, Kay says, uh, this whole book is just Sam's there and back again story, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, Kay, that's how it ends, right? You know, the last words of the book. Sam says, I'm back. Um, and the one thing, uh, you know, I, I, I said, and I remember I said at the time, when I was sitting in the movie theater, uh, as the credits were beginning to roll on The Return of the King, the first time I saw it, and I said aloud to the person I was sitting next to, I can forgive an enormous number of things that I disagreed with in his, the choice, the, the ad- adaptation choices that Peter Jackson made, I can forgive almost all of them for the fact that he maintained the ending of Sam, of, of Sam returning home and saying I'm back at the end. The fact that he kept that was uh, uh, covered over a, multiple, a multitude of sins for me. Um, but anyway... Um, Okay, uh, and again, I'm sorry, I can't get to everybody's comments, but uh, still have a lot to talk about in eight minutes in which to do it. I want to shift for a moment, uh, and I'm sorry if in some sense I was sort of conscious as I was organizing the passages I really wanted to to, to, to talk about here tonight. Um, as I was kind of organizing them, I was sort of conscious of, of sort of skipping around a little bit more than usual, um, because... All of these things are connected together in some really complicated ways, which I think, I hope, in a different sense, will sort of sort themselves out um, as we continue on through Book Four. But let's look at uh, let's look at Slinker and Stinker. Let's look at what's going on with Gollum. Um, and what I want to pay attention to here is, in particular. I want to look at the two different sides of Gollum. The two different sides of Gollum's debate. Um, and here what I want to do in particular is carefully read 
what is there. How is this scene depicting the two different sides of Gollum? How can we characterize these two different sides of Gollum based on the text? Of course, one of the things that I'm thinking of, as I'm sure you can tell, is to be careful not to be unduly influenced by the film. Um, Even though, I will say, from the beginning... I won't talk about it too much, I think. But anyway, but I will say at the beginning, I like the treatment of Gollum very much in the films. I think that uh, the way that it handles Gollum, in, especially in the Two Towers film, is there. You know, he, he deviates from the depiction of Gollum in the book fairly significantly at several points. Um, but I like it. I mean, that that the story that it tells is itself compelling, and really, I I I really enjoy Gollum in the films. I think it's very well done. But set it aside now. Focus just on this. The other thing that we need, in a sense, to set aside, though I want to compare and contrast a little bit, is Gollum as we get him in the Hobbit. Um, but I'll come back to that in a second. So, as I read this, what I want you to be doing discipline now. No conclusions. Don't give me conclusions. Don't do interpretation. Observations only. Okay? Give me observations. Not big picture stuff. Observations. Specific observations about the characteristics that we can see in both Gollums. Okay? In both sides of Gollum as he's debating with himself. Give me the attributes of those Gollums. And then we can kind of put together those observations and, and try to come to some conclusions. Okay? So don't, uh, again, no, don't don't jump to conclusions. This, this takes discipline. It's, it's really tempting to sort of start saying bigger interpretive things. Um, uh, observations. Objective facts. Data about Gollum. That's what we want to begin with. That's what we have to build from. Um, Ed has started preemptively. Very good. The pale light and the green light alternated. I think that's significant. I agree, Ed. It's one of the first cues that we get. A pale light and a green light alternated in his eyes as he spoke. Um, Good. That is a fact. That is an observation. Um, Okay, now I'm going to read it. Feel free to go ahead and type in your observations as I read. Gollum was talking to himself. Smeagol was holding a debate with some other thought that used the same voice but made it squeak and hiss. A pale light and a green light alternated in his eyes as he spoke. Smeagol promised, said the first thought. Yes, yes, my precious, came the answer. We promised to save our precious, not to let him have it, never. But it's going to him, yes, nearer every step. What's the hobbit going to do with it? We wonders, yes, we wonders. I don't know. I can't help it. Master's got it. Smeagol promised to help the master. Yes, yes, to help the master, the master of the precious. But if we was master, then we could help ourselves, yes, and still keep promises. But Smeagol said he would be very good. Nice hobbit. He took cruel rope off Smeagol's leg. He speaks nicely to me. Very, very good, eh, my precious? Let's be good, good as fish, sweet one, but to ourselves. Not hurt the nice hobbit. Of course, no, no. But the precious holds the but the precious holds the promise, the voice of Smeagol objected. Then take it, said the other, and let's hold it ourselves. 
Then we shall be master. Boom. Make the other hobbit, the nasty, suspicious hobbit, make him crawl. Yes. Boom. But not the nice hobbit? Oh, no, not if it doesn't please us. Still, he's a Baggins, my precious. Yes, a Baggins. A Baggins stole it. He found it and he said nothing. Nothing. We hate Bagginses. No, not this Baggins. Yes, every Baggins. All peoples that keep the precious. We must have it. But he'll see. He'll know. He'll take it from us. He sees. He knows. He heard us make silly promises against his orders. Yes, must take it. The raids are searching. Must take it. Not for him. No, sweet one. See, my precious, if we has it, then we can escape, even from him, eh? Perhaps we grows very strong, stronger than wraiths. Lord Smeagol, Gollum the Great, the Gollum, eat fish every day, three times a day, fresh from the sea, most precious Gollum. We must have it. We wants it. We wants it. We wants it. But there's two of them. They'll wake too quick and kill us, whined Smeagol in a last effort. Not now, not yet. We wants it, but... And here there was a long pause, as if a new thought had wakened. Not yet, eh? Perhaps not. She might help. She might, yes. No, no, not that way, wailed Smeagol. Yes, we wants it, we wants it! Each time the second thought spoke, Gollum's long hand crept out slowly, pawing toward f- towards Frodo, and then was drawn back with a jerk as Smeagol spoke again. Finally both arms, with long fingers flexed and twitching, clawed towards his neck. Okay. Good. Lots of observations. All right. Let's see what you got. Um, Emily asks a good question. What color is pale? And Emily, that's a wonderful question because that image, that, that, that usage, a pale light, is used very frequently by Tolkien. That comes up a lot. Um, and a pale light is not always good. I, I think we have to be careful here not to see the pale light and the green light as, like, white of innocence and goodness, and the green, like, venomous green. We've got venomous green light. Remember in the description of uh, Isengard, we got the venomous green that was coming up from under the ground? Um, so, like, the green is poisonous and treacherous, and the white is pure and pale. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Like, undead things glow with a pale light sometimes, frequently. You know, so... Uh, I mean, I, I mean, Emily, literally, what color is it? White-ish, I believe. Um, pale in the sense that it has no strong color. Um, but I think that a pale light in Tolkien is very different from a white light, like the light that emerges from Gandalf, or that light which, in that other um, kind of uh, 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 mythic tableau scene that I didn't quote for you, but was tempted to, uh, in the White Rider chapter, when Gandalf is sitting and looking into his cupped hands, and his hands seem to be full of white light, as as if uh, of a liquid. Um... It's not that white, right? Pale light is, I think, clearly not the same as that. Um, the, there's pale light associated with the barrel whites, for instance. Um, 
uh, with the blade of the Nazgul. Um, so anyway, um, Emily, I think that's a that's but that, that's a good uh, that's a good question. Um, okay, good. Uh, Chuck and Don were both pointing out the hissing and squeaking um, of uh, of the other voice. That's how it's initially characterized. Um, the uh, the other thought that used the same voice but made it squeak and hiss. Um, what do we? So we get the two things that are associated. These two external uh, descriptors, right, associated with the two voices before we hear any of the content of what they say. One is associated with a green light and with a squeaking and hissing voice, and the other is apparently less squeaky and hissy voice, and with a pale light. Um, before we leap to too many conclusions about that, let's t- take those observations and put them together with some of the things that we can see about the content. Okay, good, excellent. Several of you pointed out one of the things I think very striking, the pronouns, Don and, and Yana both, um, I versus we. It's very pronounced, especially at the beginning. Um, uh, we promised. Um, we wonders, yes, we wonders, I don't know, I can't help it. Um, that's very pronounced, and the narrator's already drawn our attention to this earlier on in the same chapter. Um, when that uh, the use of I seemed to point to a remnant of of, of some old truth and sincerity uh, on Gollum's part. Um, no, it's later in this chapter. But anyway, it's elsewhere in this chapter that it, our attention is drawn to that. Uh, anyway, um, I agree. The pronoun difference. Um, what do we make of that? Good, not leaping to conclusions, but let's, let's file this one away. One uses I, the other uses we. Who's the we exactly? What's the difference? Now, notice there's a shift also. Notice that this that the this the Smeagol voice um, stops saying I and begins referring to himself in the there, there's there's a gradual shift over time. I don't know. I can't help it. Then he shifts to referring to himself in this in the third person. He does in the at the beginning, Smeagol promised, right? Um, but then he shifts to the first person. But then it's back to the third person. Smeagol said he would be very good. He speaks nicely to me. We do get the me again. We get the first person singular again. Um, it comes back out, but notice it changes. Um, uh, They'll wake too quick and kill us, whines Smeagol in a last effort. Um, he, notice he's lapsed into the plural there. Um, so I, I, I think that we can see not only a distinction between the two characters in their usage of the pronouns, but we can see sort of the, a slide that's going. Smeagol is losing. Right, uh, the voice which seems to be nicer in some sense I'm being deliberately vague about that um, is losing ground <laughs> over the course of this conversation it would seem um, good um, okay more more um, Tom points out that it is the first of all Oh, a a a word um, on names. 
couple of you are using Sam's terminology, which I think is in some ways appropriate, slinker and stinker, right? Uh, as I have in the in the in the heading here. Um, but I'd want to use a caution against that. It's not that I would necessarily argue that Sam is wrong, just flat wrong about Slinker and Stinker. Notice his, he doesn't trust either one of them, right? Um, you know, that that we can see, you know, if, if, if we're hesitating, if I'm trying to make us hesitate to draw, to, to leap to conclusions, Sam has not hesitated, right? He, 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 he has his conclusion ready-made. Uh, both of them are bad. He doesn't trust either one of them. One of them sounds nicer, therefore he is Slinker, right? He's, he's the sneaky one um, who's being devious, the other one is just flat stinker, right? So you've got the one who's being openly bad and the one who's being covertly bad. That's Sam's reading, right, of Gollum here. Um, I'm not sure he's right about that. And I think that events show, towards the end of the book, that, well, he's kind of right and kind of wrong. We'll get back to that later on. But anyway, so I'd be cautious anyway, though, about applying his his terms, notice the narrator is overtly using labels here. Um, Gollum and Smeagol. His original given name. His, in a sense, sort of hobbit name. They weren't exactly hobbits, but they're related to hobbits, Gandalf says. Um, anyway, his initial given name is, 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 is attached to the pale light persona. And Gollum is the name attached to the green light squeaking and hissing persona uh, that we see those two, which respectively um, Sam calls Slinker and Stinker. So anyway, uh, let's see more. Lots about lots of observations. Um, good. Yes, Alyssa was noting the shift in the pronouns. Um, Sarah points out that Gollum uses Precious for his own alter ego as well as Precious, capital P, for the ring. Does he conflate himself with the desire for the ring? Sarah, that's a great question. And the... Um, that... I, 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 my, I guess my, my simple answer to that would be yes. Um we pointed out the pronoun thing, that Gollum always uses the, pl- the plural pronouns. One logical question, then, is um, Gollum, who's we? Who is we? Exactly. Um, do you have a, just a divide? Like, you talk to yourself all the time, so you have kind of, you know, it's just you and yourself, right? You've Yourself and your own you know, you know, if you have an alter ego, you don't generally talk to it, right? <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, you, you know, you and your own sort of personification of yourself, or is it the ring that he's talking to? Um, and the answer seems to be both. That there does seem to be, in Gollum's mind, a fundamental lack of separation there. Um, there is no us without the ring. Um, when he says, we want it, obviously he doesn't mean the ring and I want the ring, right? It's the ring that he's talking about. Um, but, uh, 
but you know, I'm I'm not sure that that distinction is even clear there, right? That we, the we which is me and the ring, want to be again, want to be reunited. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And Carolyn, when uh, Gollum says uh, he'll see, he'll know. Um, yes, he uh, he is definitely Sauron. Um, that's who he is talking about. Now, notice how they talk about him. Uh, how they talk about Sauron here. Um, Gollum is the one who brings him up. Um, Smeagol promised, yes, not to let him have it, never, but it's going to him, yes, nearer every step. So you notice the first move of the Gollum voice here is rationalization, right? He doesn't, like, you know, Smeagol says, I promised, Smeagol promised, right? Okay, um, I made a promise. The answer, Gollum's answer is not, yeah, whatever, screw the promise, right? Forget the promise. Promises don't matter. That's not what he says. He says, okay, we can work with that, right? We promise to save the precious and not to let him have it. Okay, let's save it, right? He's taking it to him. I can easily rationalize seizing the ring and saying that I'm not breaking the promise, right? Um... Uh, but notice the response. Smeagol says, Smeagol promised to help the Master. That's actually what he promised. If you go back and look at it, Frodo says, speak your promise. You know, he asks, or he says, what will you swear? And he says to be very, very good, which is a dangerously vague (laughs) promise, right? Um... He says to be very, very good and never to let him have it. Um, that's the stuff that Gollum here is referring to. But Smeagol remembers that's not the actual vow that he took. That's what he said was the spirit going to be the spirit of his vow. When Frodo says, speak your promise, he says, we promises, yes, I promise, and he uses the first person singular, I promise to serve the master of the precious. That is actually what he has promised. And that's what Smeagol reminds him of. No rational, no rationalizing betrayal, pal. Smeagol promised to help the master. To which Gollum responds, Oh, I can handle that one too. No problems, right? He has to help the master, the master of the precious. But if we was master, we could help ourselves and still keep promises. No problem. There's a way around that promise, Right? Um, but Smeagol said he would be very good. Notice what we see here. Uh, several of you um, are pointing out that um, uh, is pointing out that um, Smeagol is kinder. Diego is saying, you know, he, he loves how Gollum gradually rationalizes how he could get the things he wants without being bad or breaking his promise. Yeah, and that way, Diego, this is a classic ring-induced monologue, right? I mean, it's, it's... If you put this... If you put Gollum's rationalizations here, and again, I'm using that name precisely in this passage. Um, if you look at Gollum's rationalizations and you put it next to Boromir's speech, for instance... 
There's a lot of similarities here. We can see a similar process of rationalization. We can even remember Frodo undergoing some rationalizations that were similar in this way um, earlier on. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, Yeah, Rachel points out a good, just sort of thinking about this. Um, both seem to hold the promise as important. Both of them do recognize that the promise is significant. Um, the only question is their attitude towards it. One saying, we should be faithful to the promise, and the other saying, we can get around the promise. Um, we can be sufficiently cunning and devious to gratify our desires while still keeping the letter of the law. But the fact that the letter of the law need be kept is not debated by either one of them. The question is, which one is... One of them is attached to the spirit of the law, and the other is not, right? And this puts me in mind of the Gollum who went away a long time ago. Um, I mean, the Gollum who went away in the late 40s uh, when the first edition of The Hobbit was revised. Um the Gollum who would never, never, never cheat at the riddle game. Um, the first edition Gollum who took the keeping of promises very, very seriously and was quite earnest about it and very apologetic um, and fearful lest anyone even suspect that he would not keep his promise. Um, there's, it sounds to me, a memory of that Smeagol here uh, in, uh, in the Smeagol character. Um, he seems to actually care about the spirit of his promise. And notice there is something that is a response to Frodo's pity, at the very least a recognition of Frodo's pity. Nice hobbit. He took cruel rope off Smeagol's leg. He speaks nicely to me. Um, there's a connection between them. Frodo feels it. Frodo's aware of it. Gollum is too, on one level, um, and is responding to it on one level. Um, there are definitely positive feelings. It's This is where I think Sam is wrong. It's not just Slinker, right? He's not just... He's not the one arguing deviousness. He's arguing for honesty, um, at least to some extent. Um... Yeah, good, good. Kay was emphasizing that too. Leaning towards good things, keeping his word, showing loyalty to the Master's kindness, responding with at least a shadow of Sam's own devotion. Um, again, a distant shadow. Small fragment of Sam's devotion. Um, but again, there's there's like the seeds of that devotion. Um, nice Hobbit. He speaks nicely to me. Um, by the way, I love... Let's be good. Good as fish. Right? What the word good means to Gollum, as opposed to Smeagol, um, is very different. When Smeagol says, said he would be very good, uh, he means that in a moral sense, a general sense. Let's be good. Let us be good in the sense of being faithful and devoted and uh, trustworthy and things like that. Um, good to Gollum means good as fish like, good for you, 
right? Something which nourishes and supplies you with the stuff that you need and want. That's what's good, right? Fish are good, not in any moral sense, in a, sus- in a, in a, in a nutritional sense, and in a taste sense. Fish are good because I like fish. Fish are good because fish makes me strong, makes eyes bright, fingers tight, right? This is a, I'm quoting what Gollum will be saying later on. Um, uh, that's what... Fish are good in that sense. He argues, bad Gollum argues, let's be good in that sense. Um, good to ourselves. Let us look out after... Let us be... Uh, let us do what is pleasant to us. Let us do what is to our own advantage. <clears throat> not being good in this other vaguer sense. Um, yeah, yeah, N.K. is pointing out to Gollum, the ends justify the means, right? Um, whatever means are taken, he's not, he doesn't care. You can see, K. I I agree. I, I think with, with what I, I, if I, if I'm following your implication, which I think I am, thinking back to the conversations we've been having about all of this stuff, it's Gollum, it's green-eyed Gollum, which is following the kind of Saruman-style ends-before-means way of thinking. Smeagol, pale-eyed Smeagol, is uh, um, arguing the means over the ends, right? No, we should do what is right. We should act in ways that are right, because they are right. We promised we should keep that promise. Frodo has been kind to us, we should be very, very good to him. Not only because we promised, but because he merits goodness, because he's been kind to me. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Good, good. Yeah. <laughs> Yana says it was it was of course technically Sam who took the rope off. Yeah, but nobody's under any doubts about the, who was responsible for the taking off of the rope even if it was Sam's hand who took it off. Um it was also Sam who then immediately thereafter threatened him with the rope again. Uh yeah, yeah. Um Chuck is, that's a really neat observation. Chuck says all of Smeagol's arguments are weak. He is willing to be persuaded. Um, it's a, I, I, you know, weak is a word that's been coming up in a whole lot of your observations. Um, and, 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 and I'm not just talking to Chuck. I mean, many of you are referring to the one voice as the weak voice, which I think is fascinating. Um, uh, and um, I think. It certainly does seem to be borne out by the fact that this impulse in Gollum is weaker than the stinker impulse, than the Gollum impulse, the green-eyed Gollum impulse. Um, it's clear which of these ways of thinking is dominant uh, in Gollum's mind. Um, and you're right, Chuck, that it, he's fighting like a rear-guard action from the beginning. Um, uh, you know, but not the nice hobbit, Right. Um, oh no, not if it doesn't please us. Mind, I'm not saying that no, but uh, I'm saying not if it doesn't please us, right? So we even have like Gollum equivocating with himself here. Um, uh, you know, okay. Well, I guess if we don't kill the nice Hobbit, if we don't make the nice Hobbit crawl, we can make Sam crawl. That's okay, right? I'm willing to agree with that. 
Um, I didn't make any promises about that, and Sam has frankly, you know, not been too kind. Um, <clears throat> so, um, yeah, no, so I, Chuck, I, I agree with that, with that, uh, with that point. I think that that's uh, that's good. Yes, um, good. Um, Several of you have been using terms and concepts from modern psychology, things like multiple personality and stuff like that, uh, to refer to Gollum. And uh, it's not that I'm questioning the applicability of of any of those things, uh, of any of those terms. I'm hesitant to go there. And the reason that I'm hesitant to go there is that it is an invitation for us to import a whole bunch of stuff to Gollum that the text doesn't assert. Um, That is, saying Gollum has multiple personality disorder, as justifiable a statement as that seems on the surface, um, that is one small step. Like, basically, once you've taken that small and inviting step, um, the next thing that one would do, almost without thinking that one is taking an interpretive step, is to be thinking, okay, so, therefore, if Gollum has multiple personality disorder, then the things that are true of people with multiple personality disorder, according to modern psychology, are also true of Gollum. You see? And, therefore, we begin to take stuff from modern psychology's description of multiple multiple personality disorder and and project them onto Gollum and some of them are there in the text but not all of them are and when we do that we're not reading anymore we're we're now making a new well, making a new character it makes it sound too radical. But do do you see what I mean? That's why I, I always want to be ca- cautious about that. Again, it's not that I'm resistant to say, "Oh no, he doesn't have multiple personality disorder." Why would you think that? I'm not say- saying that, but I have been resisting, trying to resist using any of those terms from actual contemporary psychology because I want to avoid those that kind of interpretive weight. Gollum, as he's depicted, and we might make mistakes about... We might overlook things or invent things about Gollum in the book um, that aren't there if we do that. And I just want to be careful about that. Um, uh, but anyway, a bunch of people have... Uh, <laughs> as if only Gollum uh, had been on medication, this book would have ended very differently. It's so true. It's so true. Um, just think of the impact on the history of Middle-earth how they had psychotropic medications. Um, Oh, Carolyn, wonderful, wonderful observation. Carolyn, this is exactly my favorite kinds of observations. Minutiae. Fantastic. Carolyn says, Gollum refers to himself as Lord Smeagol, question mark. Gollum the Great, question mark. 
The Gollum! Exclamation point. The punctuation is interesting. Two question marks followed by an exclamation point. The Gollum is also italicized. Um, yeah, yeah, really cool. Um, it's like he's trying them out. Lord Smeagol, maybe we could be... You know, this. the, the, the question marks convey a wealth of um, implication, right? Maybe we could become Lord Smeagol. Gollum the Great. I love Gollum the Great. Uh, the Gollum. Um, yeah, no, our name will just become a title. Right, like Caesar. Uh, you know, we're not, it's not just going to be a family name. You know, it's, 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 it's not, well, it wasn't his family name, technically. But anyway, it's not just going to be a cognomen. It's going to be a title now. Uh, everyone, everyone is going to want to become the Caesar, right? So uh, Gollum is going to be like that, right? Everyone's going to be, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be the Gollum. Uh, it's going to become, uh, it's going to become a, like an order. Um, that's fantastic. Um, but I agree, Carolyn. The, um, I think that the shift, or rather, I would say the escalation from the question marks to the exclamation point, is significant. There, this is where we see his fantasy taking him away just like it took Boromir away, right? When Boromir was uh, throning himself as a king, benevolent and wise, and all that stuff, this is exactly where Gollum is going here now. Um, eat fish every day, three times a day, fresh from the sea. Um, as uh, And it was uh, uh, Sharon, yeah, I was pointing about this, that he mentioned this, he's never been to the sea. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, and what what do we make of that connection with the sea? Certainly, I mean... At the very least, he seems to... He's never been to the sea, as he says. He has associations with the sea as something remote and something exotic. He's heard that the fishes from the sea are really great. So on the one hand, it's a fairly simple... Um, it's a fairly simple... You know, again, sort of elevation of himself. Like, I, granted, I'll eat fish, but I'm going to eat awesome fish. Like, that is, like, Gollum's idea of what it would be like to be ruler, right? If you could rule the world, that would mean eating fish from the sea. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Carissa says he fails the test, uh, and also points out that the people who fail the test die, uh, that Tolkien is kind of ruthless in this way. Yeah, but, but I would remember, I would urge you to remember, though, Boromir's death isn't a failure, it's a success, right? He dies not because he failed the test, um, he dies because he he conquers, or in his death, he conquers. Um, and in a different sense, the same could be said of Gollum, couldn't it? But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, Diego, I agree. It's so cute how for him being almighty means to eat fish three times a day. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Um, recall Gollum's overheard argument with himself in The Hobbit, if you can. Uh, chapter 5. Um, when Bilbo overhears, when he's invisible, he's just put on the ring accidentally and discovered that he's invisible. And he's listening in on Gollum's conversation. Uh, as a point that I made in my book, uh, my Exploring the Hobbit book, um, was that if you look at that debate, 
um, people who are coming to that from the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films um, to to the to the depiction of Gollum in the Hobbit might kind of project onto it a like good Gollum versus bad Gollum um, dichotomy there. And in the Hobbit, we don't see that. Um, in the Hobbit, it's 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 you know like different voices of different thoughts in his. You know, one is more um, is more you know, sort of anxious and the other is... So we see him, like, his own thoughts and his own worries and fears kind of going back and forth, Um, but we don't have... uh, You know, so one is kind of a little bit more optimistic and the other one's a little bit more pessimistic. Um, But it's not a question of one has virtuous impulses and the other one is just wicked. Um, That doesn't really factor in there. It does here. It clearly does here. Um, And we do see... Um, in Gollum here, like an ongoing set of choices. Again, remember, everybody is making choices in this book. Um, you know, the two towers... Notice <laughs> here at the beginning of class, I was like, this is not the dominant theme of the book, and now here I am, spouting off on it. Um, but you can think about the two towers as the point. This is where this is where the choices are made, where the paths are chosen, right? Um, where the company splits up and go on their separate ways, but again and again we see people who are pursuing, the, you know, who are choosing their path. Um, and sometimes they are in the middle of it, and their choices are a drama that stretch throughout the book. Gollum, I think, is one of those. Where we see Gollum at the beginning in, you know, the taming of Smeagol, and here in this moment and where we're going to see him um, later on in Henneth Anun, and then again in Kirith Ungol. Uh, these are decision moments for Gollum. Um, we see it with Frodo, we see it with Sam, we see it with Aragorn, we see it with Saruman, um, we see it with Gandalf, though he's, I think, probably the one character who is furthest down the road. He's reflecting back to choices that he's made. Um, his path, he's chosen his path, but even his description of lying there on the mountaintop um, and being sort of in touch with all of the suffering of the world and the groaning of overburdened stone, remember that passage we talked about, all that stuff seems to be sort of factoring into a choice, you know I don't think he had to come back Um, I don't think he was compelled to come back um, so I, I think that even there we can see sort of a choice of paths being made. Um, Chuck, I'm totally not going to be able to talk about the Oliphant poem. Much as you know I love analyzing the poems, um, I'm totally not going to have time to do the Oliphant poem. Um, Uh, okay, there are two other passages I wanted to talk about, but I've already, it's, we're like at the two hour mark now, I really should stop. <laughs> we'll pick those up next time. The two, just uh, to uh, sort of, rev- so that you can be thinking about them, because I, I will talk about them at the beginning of the next class, um, are, uh, one is when, Frodo threatens Gollum. Um, we, you know when he tells him that uh, um, he would, 
command him to leap from a precipice or cast himself into the fire, to choose two random examples of what he might command him to do. Um, uh, we're going to talk about that passage, and I, of course I want to talk about uh, the passage that a couple of you mentioned. Brianna, I think you were quoting this in a comment earlier on, um, uh, talking about um, that passage when uh, we are reminded of Gandalf stand that at the moment when Frodo is standing there in indecision before the Black Gate, trying to decide whether to go with Gollum to uh Ungol, whose name he doesn't know. Um, at that at that exact moment, Gandalf is on the steps of, of Orthanc, having a palantir chucked at his head. Um, and the sort of the the significance of the juxtaposition of those two scenes uh, that we get there in that moment. Those are the two other things that I wanted to talk about and to get a chance to talk about. Um, but I said we'll try to do that next time. Ed asks a very excellent and sensible question. When is next time? Um, uh, uh, <laughs> soon, uh, because I call all time soon. No, um, it's going to be Friday. I can't do Thursday. I have to change the schedule this week. Um, I have uh, a, a, a thing that's come up on Thursday that I have to do, so I can't do Thursday. But uh, Friday, I'm thinking, same time on Friday, so 4.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, so the same, the normal Thursday time, but on Friday instead is what we're going to do. Um, uh, yeah, and I know that conflicts with philology, but I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, but I don't... Uh, have too much choice about that. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, we'll see. We'll see what I can do. I might, I mean, I might change the time because Ed, I mean, I have been thinking about that too. I don't want to conflict with it. It's the Mythgard philology class with Tom Shippey um, that I would be conflicting with there. Um, yeah. So, um, I might, I, I might move it back so that it doesn't conflict too precisely. Um, Jana, I might have, I would have to make it later if I did. Um, but we'll see. Maybe I, maybe I will go earlier, Jana. I know that would make it inconvenient for people, but anyway, I'll do what I can. And anyway, in any case, I will announce when exactly it is. If you go ahead and click on the link that I have posted for. Uh, for Thursday's class, I'm going to change the time on the session that's scheduled, and it will send you an email to tell you when it has been changed to. So if you register uh, for that, if you register for that session, it will, it, will, it will notify you when that is. So right, I'll, I'll try to to displease as few people as possible uh, by that. Um, so, thanks very much, everybody, and uh, uh, we. I will see you one way or another soon at the end of the week uh, to talk about uh, Faramir and stuff. So, uh, thanks very much. Good night.